Welcome to the Redeemer Covenant Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are dedicated to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening here, visit rcctulsa.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I think the last three times I preached, I welcomed you by saying good morning and asking you to say good morning back as if you were ready for beautiful weather. We've not received the beautiful weather until today, so I'd like to try again and just enjoy this moment together. I'm going to say good morning. Say it back like you're thankful for the blue skies. Good morning. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, If you do not have your Bible or maybe the Bible's new to you, I want you to be able to find this really quickly. Uh, There's a red Bible located underneath you in the seat or uh, under the seat in front of you. In the red Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is page 1782. 1782. We are in a four-week series called But God, and all of us have faced and will face moments or even lengthy seasons in which the odds don't seem to be in our favor. A health crisis, a financial struggle, fractured relationships, an addiction, exhaustion, or just disappointment with life. Andrea and I just returned from the Middle East, and I thank those of you who have prayed for us while we were away. Just to be honest with you, it's been a difficult week to process the things that we saw uh, in the context of needing the miraculous to take place as we met refugees from Iraq who many of them had loved ones, a spouse, a child that have been killed by ISIS before their very eyes, and they ran to survive. And when you meet these people and you discover the challenges that are real around the world, you're reminded that we all need God. We all need God's help and intervention in our lives. We all, even our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and us here today, have or will at some point experience this feeling of the fragility of life where we face the impossible, and where we feel like our hope is threatened. So all across the world, this common denominator among humanity is that we all struggle. And I don't know what your struggle is. I know you have them. We have them in my family. But I believe this to be true. In the context of each and every one of our struggles, this is what I believe. Transformation happens when we stop saying, but I... And we start saying, but God. Now I'm going to tell you my temptation and my circumstances and my struggles and the difficult days of my life. I have the tendency to say, but I feel this way or but I am experiencing this, but I just can't do this. But transformation truly begins to happen when we eliminate ourselves out of the scenario and we say, but God. So you can't. And I can't, and we can't, but God can. I need somebody to wake up. I know it's early in the sermon, but what I just said should have been returned with an amen, at least one. We'll try again. You can't, and I can't, and we can't, but God can. So this is a series about God's transforming power. And we know that God's word is timeless, 
But understanding the context in which it was written is important for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see Paul shooting this flare, warning the church. And it's clear, if you read about these people, that morality was fading. First, the Corinthians were indulging in cultic meals in pagan temples where meat was sacrificed to idols. Second, many were participating in fertility rituals, which is prostitution that people believed brought health and fertility and prosperity in their lives. Third, they were testing the Lord to eat idolatrous food and participate in recreational sex is knowingly abusing God's grace. They had heard about grace, and so they started to live out in certain liberties, abusing grace. And the fourth thing that we see Paul call out this church, and I know you don't know anybody like this, (laughs) Uh, but he says, guys, you're just full of complaints. Simply put, you're an ungrateful, grumbling people. And so Paul shoots this flare, and he reminds them, and he reminds us today that our ancestors made similar mistakes. In verse 6, he says these things occurred, these mistakes made by our ancestors and their relationship with God, this historical relationship between God and Israel, these occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Basically, he's saying, remember our history. Friends, remember and be warned. These people that come before us, they knew God, and they walked with God, and they experienced his presence and his power. They experienced the miraculous. They ate and they drank in abundance, yet they were defeated by temptation. I love how Eugene Peterson interprets Paul's warning to the church. He says, these are all warning markers in our history books, written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They were at the beginning and we're at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. He says, don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. Unfortunately, as Proverbs 26, 11 tells us, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Sin is inevitable, but for you and I, learning from our sin, learning from our mistakes, and repeating our sin is optional. I mean, we have the choice, and that's the responsibility that we all have as we engage in this cosmic battle over our souls. As German philosopher Frederick Hegel puts it, the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. The only thing that we learn from history is that mankind simply doesn't learn from history. So you and I are not living in the first century Palestinian culture, but it's 2018, and morality still seems to be fading. We see political corruption and sexual perversion and pornography and genocide and war, drug trafficking, abuse of power, love of money, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, decay of our marriages, and disregard for life. 
But as one politician said about our nation, a country that has been relentlessly, since 1963, in the courts, driving God out of public life, shouldn't be surprised at all by the problems that we're facing. While Paul's warning was valid for those first century baby Christians, his warning applies to us today. Verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think that you are standing firm, I've got this all together. I'm a good spiritual person. If you think you have it all together, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful. You know that you're going to face temptation. But in, in the face of temptation, we've got to remain humble. We cannot live with pride in our own strength. To think that my own strength has any capabilities in this cosmic war is to set myself up for failure. We can't be naive. We can't be unmindful about this powerful and persuasive and persistent opponent that is out to devour your life. The Bible says Satan's aim is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's a master of disguise, and he's incredibly seductive. His lies are seductive. And one of the best defenses that we have is to remain realistic about this battle that we're in and the temptations of the world that we will face. And to be honest internally and with one another about our own limited strength in this battle. I have people in my life, and I hope you have people in your life, and then the accountability and honesty and vulnerability that we have with our spouses or our friends or our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ to sit down with one another in a safe place full of grace and say, I need help. I'm not walking out my faith as I know I should. I'm not on the straight and narrow. And we reach out to one another in vulnerability and honesty. Because really, yes, we feel like we're standing firm, but we have to be careful that we don't fall. Now you're thinking, this is really encouraging, Adam. Thanks for a great start to your sermon. I think this series is called, But God. And so enough about our sin. When are you going to come in with the encouragement? I'm glad you asked. It's right now in my notes. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. Following the warning is the promise. And here it is, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is unusual for human beings, but God is faithful. Now, y'all say that out loud with me. But God is faithful. Let's say it one more time like you believe in his faithfulness. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Instead, along with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. So, this is the promise for your life and my life, and this is our statement to carry home with us today. I am tempted, but God delivers me. I'm tempted, yes, but God delivers me. And notice, it doesn't say God helps me. Does he help me? Yes, but we also help each other. And I'm gonna tell you right now, in your temptations and in your sin, I can, I can help you. I can be of assistance. I can love you. I can remind you and point you to God's word. I can't deliver anybody. You can't deliver anybody. So we help each other in the body of Christ, but he delivers us. So here are three assurances for you today from Scripture. Number one, God is not surprised by temptation. 
He's not surprised. The verse begins by informing us that temptation is a common denominator among humanity. It's not unusual, and you are not alone. And you see the sin in your life, and you're wrestling with the temptation in your life, and then here comes the other temptation to think that you're all alone or that God has abandoned you, or that nobody else can relate to your challenges. You're not alone. Usually when we come forward and confess our sin, part of the healing process is confessing our sin to one another. He who is righteous and just will forgive you and help you find deliverance from that sin. You're not alone. And you're not the only person facing the temptations that you're facing. Our enemy is out for everybody, not just you. And so God is not surprised by our temptation. No one has ever in the history of humanity come before the Holy of Holies and confessed a sin and heard God respond like this, Oh my me. Oh my me, what have you done with your life? What? God doesn't respond that way to our sin. You're not shocking him. When you bring your sin before him. He expects obedience but not perfection. There's only one perfect righteous man to ever walk the face of the earth and that's Jesus. Now let me remind you of something else. Your temptations or your sins don't make you any better or any worse than anybody else. So we don't look at other people and think "They're they're just so much worse than me. I have it all together, right? I mean, that goes back to verse 12, the warning of be careful. You think you're standing firm, but you could fall flat on your face like everybody else can. And so our sin issues, they don't make us better or worse. Some of, some of you may look at other people and think they're so holy. Wow. I mean, that's a really awesome Christian. I'm, I'm nothing like him or her. I mean, nobody is better or worse than anybody in this fight with sin. And society has disgustingly categorized sin. We have. We say that sexual sin is classified as dirty and gossip is given a hall pass each and every day. It is. As a matter of fact, whether it's pride or total ignorance, some people gossip and they call it fellowship. And even worse than gossip and fellowship, some people, their gossip is disguised in the form of a prayer request. Oh, I'm sorry, was that somebody's toe? You want to hear some examples? Good. I just want to encourage you to pray for the Jones family. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but their marriage seems to be struggling. I don't know why I just went into accent. Uh, But you're going to have to deal with it because I got a couple more. Um, If you could just... If you could just lift up my brother, Brad. Uh, I saw him at lunch the other day, and he, he was drinking a beer. It was just lunch. Um, did you hear about the Smith's daughter? Uh, I don't know when this started, when she started to spiral downward, but I heard she's been smoking the marijuana. Um, and, and friends, church, we really need to remember our brother John in prayer because he's considering getting a tattoo and it won't be his first and if you could just be praying 
for our sister Susie, and you get the point. I'm done. There's no categorizing our sin. All sin is gross. All people sin. All sin is equally rebellious. And God is not surprised by any of it. So in the kingdom of God, there's no categorizing our sin. We all relate to one another as people that fall short of the glory of God and people that need the redemption of a loving Savior. Second, God allows us to be tempted. God allows us to be tempted. This doesn't mean that we won't trip and fall in our lives, but our failure is not a result of having more than we can handle because the promise that God made is he will be with us and not put more temptation in our lives than we can bear. That his presence allows us to endure temptation. There's nothing that you will ever face in this life that is too overwhelming for God's intervention. He will never step back and look at your situation and think, "Mm -mm, I just can't handle this one. This was a curveball. He never looks at any of our situations in that way. But God is love and he loves you. And because he loves you, he never leaves you. He never abandons you. He never forsakes you. But he also doesn't tempt you. He allows you to be tempted, but he is not the tempter. This is James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The Greek word here for enticed, deliazo, means to bait a hook or to set a trap with bait. I don't know just by a show of hands anybody that likes to bass fish. Go ahead. I need to see. I need to see how many brothers that bass fish I worship with. I love you gentlemen and ladies who bass fish. Uh, It's crazy to see the unique lures that the industry has invented in order to catch uh, fish. I have my three favorites, my three go-tos. This is the Arkansas Shiner. This is the Bubblegum Fluke, otherwise known as the Pink Sluggo. And then there's also the Crawfather. And these are my go-tos. But just to show how unique this industry is, let me tell you a few other lures that have been invented uh, to, to, to be disguised in the water in a way that lures a fish. We got little barky and a power worm and spook frog and a rat trap, terminator, pencil popper, rooster tail, red panther, Swedish pimple, blue fox, wobbler, shorty, Phoebe, hotshot, jitterbug, and the flat-eyed jig. My point is this, the industry is doing everything they can to figure out how to get a fish to bite the bait. And the enemy, your enemy, is doing everything he can to figure out how to get you to bite the bait. And he will try one temptation, and if you look back at him and go, no sir, I'm rising above this, this doesn't tempt me. He's not going to leave you alone. He's going to go back to the whiteboard and devise a new plan to come after your throat. And then he's going to try to attack you with that temptation until he finds something that works, until he finds the very thing that lures you away from God's protection, lures you away from the promises in God's word, and gets you to bite the bait. And why do fishermen 
put a worm on a hook. Now, I thought about this this week, and I thought about it in a way I never have before. The answer is to catch a fish, right? You put a worm on the hook to catch a fish. And this week I realized you don't just put a worm on a hook to catch the fish. You put a worm on a hook to hide the real deal. It's not just about catching the fish. Before you catch the fish, you got to hide what's real. And you know what's real behind the worm is the hook. And the hook hurts. It's not about the worm. The worm is just the attraction. The real deal is the hook that steel kills and destroys. Let me tell you something about fish. I've never spoken to one, but this is speculation. Fish are dumb, but they're not crazy. They're not, they're not crazy. They are dumb, but if you sat down with a fish and you had a few minutes of, of communication and you, you're able to speak to a fish and they speak back, you're like, fish, if you knew what was behind the worm, if you knew the real deal that's hidden, if you knew about that sharp hook, would you bite the bait? They're not crazy. They would say, no, I'm not going to bite the bait because I know if I bite the bait, I'm lured into the boat, and three hours from now, I'm on a plate right in between some French fries and, and some coleslaw. They're dumb, but they're not crazy. Sometimes we're dumb in our walk with Christ, but we're not crazy. So remember, what's behind the bait is being hidden, and what's hidden is a lie. He is a liar. That's his native tongue. Whatever your temptation, always think about what's hiding. Don't bite the bait. The progression is very real in Scripture. It's right here in James chapter 1. We have this evil desire. That's not a sin. That's just humanity. We see things around us that wage war against our convictions, enticed by this evil desire, and then we're tempted that's not a sin either, but then we're tempted so bad that eventually we walk away from what we know we want to do and we bite the bait. That's a sin. God's grace is sufficient, but then sin can sometimes become habitual sin and we get in a lot of trouble because that leads, according to James chapter 1, to death. Which brings me to my last point. Yes, temptation is not a sin. But temptation can be escaped before it becomes a sin. God allows us to be tempted, but three, God helps us overcome temptation. <clears throat> You're not expected to overcome anything on your own. God allows us to overcome temptation. There was a man on a diet, and he had a sudden craving for donuts. And so he drove to the donut shop, and he kept circling the block. And then he prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know you don't want me to eat donuts. I know that it's not your will that I eat donuts, but I need you to confirm your will. There are no parking spaces at this donut shop. So I'm going to drive around the block one more time, and when I return, if there are no parking spaces available, I will take that as divine confirmation. After driving around the block eight more times, a spot became available and the man pulled into the spot, went inside and ate a donut. It was chocolate, and then he ate a second one. In moments of temptation, God is there with you. No doubt about it. But there is a part that we have to play to. He can set us 
free and help us overcome temptation, but we don't need to drive around the block eight times in order to justify sin. This donut drama sounds a little bit like Paul's frustration with sin from Romans chapter 7. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the things I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me? Who will rescue you? Do I have any hope? You have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea how much pain I feel. You have no idea what I have done. Will anybody rescue me? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Overcoming temptation before it gives birth to sin is not actually about focusing on the sin itself. Paul didn't say, thanks be to myself. After eight long years of bravely fighting this sin, I have finally won and overcome it. Paul did not say, thanks be to myself for following adequate strategies Uh, suggested by my pastor and accountability partner and thanks to be to myself for reading my Bible faithfully and memorizing a bunch of scripture. It's not about me and it's not about you and it's not about the sin. It's about Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It's not about my power in this war. My power is embarrassingly pitiful against my enemy, but not with God. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Jesus himself taught us to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. So let me finish. We will be tempted, absolutely, guaranteed, it's inevitable. We will see the bait. We will see it right there before our very eyes and it's just dangling on a hook and it's enticing and I want to bite it and I want to live in this sinful way and I want to gratify the natures of my flesh. We will be tempted and we'll see the bait and for a moment it's enticing but we're not dumb. We're not dumb people. We know God's word and we know what's hiding. We know the hook is in disguise and we know our enemy is a liar and we know that we don't have to turn away from this hook because we're afraid of the hook. We don't have to turn away from the hook because I'm afraid of the consequences that are coming to my life if I do choose sin. It's not about the sin and the consequence. It's about Jesus. I turn away from the hook, not out of fear. I turn away from the hook because I'm a royal priesthood. I'm God's special possession. I'm a son of God who's called to declare the praises of my king who called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You don't have to turn away from the hook because you're afraid of how sharp it is, but because you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but it is Christ that is alive in you. The life that you live in this body 
You live by faith in the Son of God. You don't turn away from the hook because you're afraid of the consequences that you may face in your life. You turn away from the hook because this world, the lust of the flesh of this world, the lust of our eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world and the world and its desires, listen here, passes away, but he who does the will of the Father lives forever. So, We're going to be tempted, but God delivers us.